All right, well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump in. Father, we just thank you for another Lord's Day. We thank you for the uh, privilege of studying the Bible and being able to read it, and um, we just pray that the Spirit would give us understanding in the things we need to see as we look at Zechariah and connect it to Ezra. And so I pray, God, that you would help us do that now and guide everything that's said tonight so that it would be pleasing to you and edifying to us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So we're going to look at Zechariah this week and next week. And you'll remember that last time we looked at Ezra, or not Ezra, we looked at uh, Haggai, or Haggai. Rather, I've always pronounced it Haggai, but I think the correct pronunciation is Hag, Haggai. How, what, how have you guys ever pronounced that book? Just Haggai, right? I don't know where I got Haggai. Did you really? Probably in our like the songs. I think that you memorize the Old Testament books. It's always Haggai, Zechariah. And um, really, though, I think it's probably just Haggai. And. Um, Anyway, so Ezra, remember why we're studying these two books, these two prophets, uh, minor prophets is what they're, they're called, and uh, the reason is, is because they show up as a part of the story of Ezra, and you'll recall that there was, uh, they come back after their captivity in Babylon, and they begin to build the temple and they get opposition, and it doesn't take long until the work ceases at the end of chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, and this is Ezra, by the way, you don't have to look at it, but I'm just re- reminding you. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them." And um, then when you, in chapter 6 of Ezra, we find that once the temple, they they get started again under the preaching of of Haggai and and Zechariah. And once that happens, we're told in chapter 6 that it was through the encouragement of these two men, these two prophets, that they were built up. And so part of what we're doing is we're just doing overview with Haggai, that was very easy, just two chapters, so we did one chapter per week. With Zechariah, it's a little longer of a book, 14 chapters, and it's not our intention to go through that and study it. I, I plan to do just two weeks in it, maybe three, and we'll just point to pick out main points that would have been encouraging to the people as they were um, rebuilding the temple. Um, And so, as a matter of fact, in chapter 6 of Ezra, in verse 14, it says, The elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. So we have here that that God used these two men, these two prophets, specifically for that period of time to encourage the people of Israel to get back to work. That was the first step. They had gotten uh, lazy, you remember. They had gotten too involved in their daily lives. They were neglecting the whole purpose that they had come back. They had gotten off center. And so they're encouraging the work. God uses that. And then while they're building, while they're doing this, 
They kept prophesying from God to them, and it was the Word of God that was encouraging and building them up, and that is recognized in the book of Ezra. So we should give some attention to these two prophets, okay, and what they actually said for them. And there, is many, there are many uh, things that we can look at, and, and I'm even talking about a very practical level, from the book of Ezra and from these prophets that we can take and actually apply into our own time and into our own lives into the building project we're a part of. Aren't we all part of a, a holy temple being built, right? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Another metaphor that's used for that in Scripture is that it's a holy temple being built up uh, into a dwelling place of, of God by the Spirit. So now we have this spiritual temple being built up in this age, and, and we are all part of that. That's part of what we're looking at on Sunday mornings when we're talking about the doctrine of the church. We're all a part of this building project. And so there's, there's things that we can actually look at, even though we are not... Uh, and I was about to do the math of how many years ago it was in head, but we talked about this before, never do math on the spot. But like, even though we're not living in that time and in that place, God's Word is designed in such a way, by the way, this is really important principle about the Bible. It's designed in such a way that no matter who you are or where you are, all of it is relevant to you. All of it is profitable for you to apply into your life. What passage teaches that in the New Testament very clearly? Okay, that's one. Good. There's more than one then. I'm thinking of one, but that is good. Yes, yeah, 2 Timothy 3.16, where we get our doctrine of inspiration, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, it doesn't matter where you're studying. You can take these things and apply these things into our lives, into the church. God's Word is designed that way. Not one part of it was designed to be just thrown off and not used. All of it's profitable. And so, the the key is sometimes figuring out how it applies. That's sometimes a tricky part. I will admit that. It can be a little tricky, but how does it apply is the question, but it all applies and is profitable for us. So we can learn even in our own time from uh, uh, Haggai or Haggai, however you pronounce it, and Zechariah, and we can learn from from this. So now, um, now the first thing that Zechariah does, and this is where we're going to spend the first part of our time is in these first six verses, and it shouldn't surprise us that what he does is the same thing Haggai did. He calls the people to repentance. Remember, Haggai did that, and he used that phrase, consider your ways now. And he called them out, things like, you know, you're you're dwelling in your paneled houses. My house sits in ruins. Consider your ways, those kinds of things. And um, Zechariah does something similar and what we have in verse 1, let's just read this section, the first six verses. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord, 
of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, let's just pause right there for a moment. Um, He says in verse 2, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Now, probably, probably, their fathers being the preceding generation that had been driven out of the land and uh, driven into Babylon for the captivity, okay? It's through that. And by the way, just a little side note, and we'll probably touch on this some other time, but the Lord of hosts, as the description of the Lord here, the Lord of armies, literally, Lord of armies, Lord Sabaoth, like we sing it on uh, Martin Luther's hymn, Lord Sabaoth is his name. The Lord of hosts is used like 50-something times in this book, which it's his primary title here, has reference to his sovereignty and his ruling over all things. And if you think about it in the context of these people there in Israel, kind of at the mercy somewhat of the Babylonian Empire and then the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, and you think about that, God's reminding them, don't forget I'm above them. Um, I'm in control of the situation. But anyway, Do not be like your fathers, verse 4, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So that means we can say the fathers he's referring to are probably the direct generation or so before that were cast into Babylon, but even it goes back further than that, doesn't it? Because when we're talking about these other prophets that were there, Um, Isaiah and others that were prophesying to the people of Israel and then to people of Judah, they were constantly saying, you need to turn from what you're doing. You need to repent of this. Over and over again, the Lord was warning them over the course of centuries now that they needed to turn back to the Lord and fulfill their covenant obligations with Him and worship Him and Him alone. But what did they do that whole time? They ignored him. They ignored him. Okay, and the Lord is bringing this out to this new generation. He's like, I want you to consider what has happened in these previous generations. I want you to consider what got you into this mess. You know, I want you to look around Jerusalem and see this really destroyed city that at this point isn't even built up yet. No wall around it. I want you to see the temple that's still needing to be built, and I want you to think about why this happened, because it's not a mystery, okay? It's not something that's secret. It is something that is very clear of why this happened. They would not turn from their evil deeds. They did not, look at verse uh, 4 again, they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. He says, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words... In my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? In other words, he said what would happen to him, and it did. Okay. So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. What uh, Zechariah is pointing out is that the, for, this, for them to get started again, what they need to understand is they need to understand what got them into the mess in the first place, and they need to turn from that, 
and they need to turn to the Lord. Okay? If you look at verse 3, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. The word for return could mean return or repent. It's used both ways. As a matter of fact, it's used as repent down in verse 6, so they repented. Okay? It's the idea, it's, it, the word literally means to turn. Okay? And um, it, it, you're, you're going in one direction, you turn the other direction. And when it talks about sin, you're walking in one direction, you need to repent of that, which means you need to turn from it. And in this case, the Lord's making it very clear. You need to turn from the ways of your fathers. You need to identify those, and you need to turn from those, and you turn towards me. Okay? So there was a need for repentance. If they were going to be used of God to build this temple in all of the promises that you will see in Zechariah of how great this is going to turn out one day and the glory that's coming and, and Jerusalem's restoration and Israel's restoration and the king, uh, Davidic king showing up, they're preparing the way for that. But if this is going to work, they must be a repentant people. They must turn from the ways that their fathers were in. They must listen to the Lord. And then the promise, the offer of grace and mercy is, you turn to me and I will turn to you. Okay? It's almost as though God had turned away from them. And he's saying, but if you turn to me, I will return back towards you into this relationship that we had before, and I will bless you and your work, you see. This is always the principle of repentance throughout all of Scripture. The Lord never wants us wondering how he will respond to us when we repent and turn towards him. It's never to be a question in the minds of God's people. When we turn from sin to the Lord, the promise is, I will turn to you. And um, this, is, this is a consistent theme through Scripture. It's never really a, something that we're to guess about or wonder. How will the Lord respond to my repentance? Something similar is in 1 John chapter 2, or 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins. What does John say? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's never a question involved in how the Lord will respond to us. Isn't that encouraging? And this is before He's commanding them to do anything. This is almost, it's almost like this is, this is where we begin here. You need to understand, before you begin building, or before you continue that, you need to just turn to me in repentance, and I will turn back to you, so that they don't get the impression that well, let's, God's been angry with our fathers, God is angry with us, let's get busy and work, and then we'll see if God will then turn to us. Like, we'll build, and then we'll say, see what we did, God? Aren't you really happy with us now? So, God, now turn back in your favor to us. That's never been the way it's worked with God's people. It is always the first thing, first things first, right? You turn from your evil ways and you turn to me. This is why the issue of the gospel is always one of repentance, right? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. When you do that, you receive grace from the Lord. This is a really gracious promise. Exactly. And that principle is throughout all of the Scripture as well.
It always begins with God's initiation of grace and a call to faith and then a response of forgiveness and justification and then now get to work type of thing, okay? That's, that's, the, that's the way it always is. So he begins with this importance of forgiveness. Um, now, I'll, I'll have us turn to James. Before we move on from this, let's look at James 4. And um, let's see what he says there. Sometimes, even believers, uh, we get ourselves in situations or in times of life where we, w- we wander away from the Lord. It happens, or we. By that, I mean we don't walk out of salvation. We don't lose our salvation. But we, through our own sin, uh, can backslide. We can get into situations where sin almost envelops us in our lives. And for some, this can get real serious real quick. People that can have very life-changing sins that destroy segments of their life, right? They're still a believer. And the issue is always first things first. When that person comes to that realization is repentance is required immediately, okay? So, James is warning here against worldliness, chapter 4, and he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Then look at this in verse 6. But he gives more grace. How many people can read through that? Christians, we read through that and all of a sudden it's like our heart is smitten with this concept of man, I've become a friend of the world in this way or that way or this way or that way. I've gotten off track here, okay? And he calls us out on it. But then the assurance in verse 6 is so good, but he gives more grace, right? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So here's the application. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then notice what he says in verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Isn't that the same thing, pretty much, the Zechariah, the Lord saying through Zechariah? Turn to me, I'll turn to you. You've recognized what you're doing wrong. Turn to me, I'll turn to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you dumble-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. A picture of recognition of what we've done wrong or are doing wrong. And the response to it is that we turn from it and we humble ourselves before the Lord and we always know what the response is going to be. It's never a question. It didn't change at any time in your Scripture. It's the same with James as it was with Zechariah. When you turn to the Lord, He turns to you, so to speak. He will forgive you. He exalts and restores the humble that humble themselves before Him. So, it's just a common theme of 
repentance from beginning to end. It isn't something, obviously, with James writing to believers, it isn't something that you do once. I repented once, and I, then I turned to Jesus, right? I think repentance is a, is a life uh, pattern for Christians, because as we walk through the different seasons of life, we find more and more ways in which we need to repent again, and we repent again, and repent it again. Um, even in the sense that in the New Testament word for repent, uh, metanaeo is the word, and it means, in part, to change one's mind. So you come to a place where you realize you're thinking wrongly. In a, uh, about a situation in your life or, or whatever it is, and you're changing that and you're turning back to the Lord, and He will do that. It is interesting, though, in James 4 as well, there is responsibility upon the believer in this. Yes, you will receive, of course, the cleansing of the blood of Jesus, which is for, you know, covers your sins and washes it away, but He says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The reason that came, that came up in our small group the other night, because John says something very similar in 1 John, when he talks about the fact that we're looking forward to Jesus coming, and we want to do so so that when He appears, we won't be ashamed at His appearing. We won't want to shrink back when He appears, because we're not harboring sin. We're not living in a way that we know displeases Him. And so he says, and, 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 when, and then he makes a comment that when we see him, we're going to be like him, which is that transformation of our bodies into a glorified state. We're going to become like Jesus in glory because he appears in glory. Colossians 3, we too will appear with him in glory. This is our hope. This is what we're looking for every day. And he says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. So there is a cleansing that God gives to His people through the blood of Christ, a sanctifying work that we don't do a thing for. It comes to us by God's grace. But then there is responsibility of the believer to cleanse themselves, as Paul will say in Romans 15, from all defilement of the flesh. Everything that we see, there's this responsibility in waiting for Jesus. That struck me this morning, actually, from what we talked about at my small group the other night, and that struck me more this morning when I was in the service and I was thinking about that concept, and then something came to my mind, and I thought, I don't, I don't want to have the shame of any sin in my life when Jesus returns. And there's, there's motivation in that. That's what Paul says. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. And, um, and so there's that concept of we're preparing ourselves for the return of Christ. And in many ways, what were they doing here in, in Zechariah? What were they doing in Ezra? They were preparing themselves, that place and those people, for the coming of the king, for the entrance of the king himself, Jesus. And as we'll look at next week, there's many passages in here talk about this this branch coming, who is the king, the, the Davidic king, Zechariah 9.9, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on donkey. How do we prepare for that? Through repentance and turning from sin 
and, and sanctification and, and all of those things that we learn about. This is how we're preparing for the kingdom itself even. And uh, this is why Jesus steps on the scene and He says, repent or be repenting for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? It's that same concept. We're preparing for His arrival and within that what we're doing is preparing ourselves. Um, and there's much to living in this concept of of integrity, meaning uh, it's not your responsibility with me to be purifying myself from my, you know, sins or whatever. It's up to me. It's up to you. It's uh, both our public and our private existence. Living in this uh, quorum deo, as it's called, this idea that God is always with us and sees us and we are trying to live in a way that is pleasing to Him. So anyway, repentance is the foundation. This keeps them from any kind of uh, works-based salvation system, and it's a preparation time by this repentance. It's essential that they do this in preparing them for the arrival of the King, and we're doing the same thing in our day and age. Any questions or, or such on any of that? The first one. Okay, now beginning in verse 7, which we're not going to touch on much of this, like I said, but I'll just throw this out. There are eight visions that Zechariah presents that come from the Lord, and they are spread out through these, and they all speak to this. They're all designed to bring encouragement to the people as they are beginning the work and, and doing the work. They're all designed to say, in essence, God is in this. God is with you. God's going to bring this to pass through you. And so keep working with that in mind, right? So those are those eight visions. So I just thought I'd put that out there. We might talk a little bit more about that next week. But I want to bring you to the second vision that I think is really important to hone in on at this time in their existence. And if you look at chapter 3, it's the vision of Joshua the high priest, okay, in chapter 3. Now, listen to this. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Uh, so remember, the two main characters, Zerubbabel, the civic leader from the line of David, not a king, because they couldn't have a king, but a civic leader, David, uh, or um, Zerubbabel. And then you had the high priest, Joshua. He was going to be responsible for the temple and all of that that will go on when it is built. But here he is. He sees... Uh, he, he showed me uh, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, literally the Satan, the accuser or the adversary, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, intercedes for, for Joshua, and he says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand or a, really a stick, a burning stick, plucked, rescued out of the fire before it was burned up? Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Let's pause right here for a moment. So, in this vision he has, he sees this Joshua, the high priest, but he's clothed with filthy garments. That's a problem because they had to have their clean 
priestly robes on them as they interceded, you know, between God and man in their priestly duties and their service at the temple, right? They couldn't show up in filthy uh, clothes or filthy garments. And probably that is really the, the content of Satan's accusation, okay? And he's not fit to be in this position. He is not fit to be the high priest. And, um, and so the Lord actually intercedes with them. There's so many pictures here of stuff that's cool, like what we looked at in Romans 8 just not too long ago, where Jesus now, our great high priest, intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father, the one this Joshua was pointing towards, the one we really needed who had no filthy garments, who is pure and holy and righteous and he intercedes for his people and the fact that he's getting between Satan himself and Joshua and stepping in and saying, this is an emblem of my grace that you're attacking here. He, and, and the interesting thing about the accusation is it's true. When we think about if, if Satan went before the Lord for any one of us, do you think he would have enough evidence to say that so-and-so or such-and-such is not fit to be called a Christian? Look at what they did. Look at what they continue to do. Look at how they talk. Look at how they act in certain situations. Do you not think that the, his accusations have merit? They do, do they not? I mean, at face value, Joshua was in dirty clothes. This was an obvious, Zechariah even said it. It's not like he was in clean clothes and Zechariah sees that and the Lord's like, no, he has clean clothes on. No, he is unfit for his duty. It was a true accusation. And the angel said to those who were standing by, this is verse 4 now, so let's continue this vision. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, what did this all stand for now? Thankfully, don't we like when visions and prophecies have explanation to them? It makes it so much easier for our interpretation. But listen to this, he says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So, um, the, it was true that Joshua had a problem, and he had those filthy garments, but what do they represent in this vision? Sin, iniquity, right? And and so, look at what the Lord does for Joshua. He says, remove those from him, and I've taken your iniquity away, and I clothe you with pure vestments. And then, he, and then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So, they put a, a turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now, this is a, if there is any clearer picture in all of the Bible of what we would call um, substitutionary atonement coupled with um, uh, the imputation of righteousness. 
the idea of justification. Everything that we walk through, remember, in Romans. And justification itself carried with it two elements, okay? It is, first of all, the removal of sin. Uh, so that as, it's as if the person has never sinned, right? And the second is the giving. That's not enough. It's the actual giving of the righteousness and the sinlessness that the person needs but doesn't have. This is a picture of not just what God would do with Joshua or what He'd provide for him, but what He would provide through the greater high priest, of which Joshua is, a, is really typifying here, a greater high priest who would come and provide what all of us need in this great exchange, we'll call it, as John Stott called it, the removal of the sin and the imputation of righteousness. So if you look at, as an example, at Romans 4, And he says, um, is it Romans 4? Yes. He says in verse 6 of Romans 4, he says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. There's one element, and it's going in reverse here of what we looked at. But there is, you're getting righteousness apart from works. In this whole scene, Joshua was not commanded to do a thing at this point. It was just to stand there and let everything be done for him and to him. That's important because he's about to be told things he's going to do now. But it has to begin here of that removal. So, blessed is the one, uh, David even speaks of this, to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So we have the removal of the sin and we have the crediting of the righteousness. In Joshua, we see it as the removal of the filthy garments and the giving of clean garments. That's a picture of what we all need and what the Lord provides for each of us. By works? No. By faith alone. This is the whole point that Paul makes in Romans. And God is enabled to do this. Look back at chapter 3, again of Zechariah now, and look at verse 6. Um, let me see. Go down. Actually, just look at verse 10. He says, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts. No, wait a minute. It's, um, oh, no, it's in verse 9. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes. This is going to be just this, um, could be some kind of stone, gem, something to that effect. But its whole purpose is to speak about what God is promising here. And he's about to promise to remind the priests as they're ministering in the temple of what God is promising now. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in what? In a single day. That is a, if that's not a pointer to the, to the atonement of Jesus Christ at the cross, I don't know what it would be. The iniquity of this land will be removed off of it in a single day, pointing to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, even in the Old Testament, when you read about 
guys like Joshua and their iniquities taken away. God says that to them, and it's a reality. He removes the iniquity, and He gives them the righteousness. But there's a real problem with that. Because if it's not resolved eventually, because there's no basis for the removing of iniquity. Remember when, when the Lord revealed Himself to Moses and He said, you know, I'm gracious, I'm merciful, forgiving transgressions and everything, but I will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the children on the, uh, chil- uh, fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation. I'm no, by no means going to clear the guilty. So this was all a pointer. The way God was going to be able to do this and the way He removed iniquity, even of David, who could say, man, my sins are forgiven, I'm blessed, this is awesome, is based upon the person of Jesus Christ who would at the cross once for all atone for the sins of the whole world. It was a one-time event where Jesus Himself atones for the sins of His people, past and present and future, So even men like Joshua who could have their sins uh, completed or uh, removed from them based really on a a promise um, of one day that the uh, the sins will be removed completely. And if you think about this with Joshua, all the time after the temple's built, he's ministering there, all his um, comrades are there with him, the other priests that are ministering there. They have this stone set there as a reminder of what's going on with this. And, and as they're offering these sacrifices and really probably celebrating uh, or observing Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement every year, just thinking about what this is picturing when God Himself will provide the ultimate sacrifice for sins, when He will atone for sins in a single day. This is also showing that those sacrifices of animals were not sufficient to atone for the sins of His people. They were pointing towards what he was going to do with Jesus Christ. Zechariah, Christ is everywhere being pointed to. Like Obviously, there's something more coming, something more that's going to happen with this issue. And uh, he says in verse... Um, Verse 8, we skip this. Here now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you probably... Uh, could also be associates who sit before you, so the other priests. For they are men who are a sign. They're a sign of what? Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. You see. And um, we know that the branch is Christ. Jeremiah talks about this. Isaiah talks about this. There is a branch that is coming, and this would be Christ. And he'll go on further on in Zechariah to explain who this is, but it's all pointed towards it. And I just want to show you this in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. So if you look at Jeremiah 23, we can close with this one and, and, and then this poem I'm going to read you. Jeremiah 23, in verse 5, 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Okay, so this is who Zechariah would have had Jeremiah and is referring then to this righteous branch that is coming. Okay? that uh, I will raise up for David, so we know he's coming from the seed of David, so we know it's the Davidic king, the righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord 
is our righteousness. Picturing exactly what we're seeing in Joshua. Who is our righteousness? Who provides us with not only the forgiveness of sins, but the righteousness we need? The Lord. You see, this is why it's such a big deal that He is interceding for us, Jesus is, at the right hand of God, because He is our righteousness. So our righteousness is a perfect righteousness that is not our own. It is Christ's given to us. So in the day that He would be risen up and His people would see it, they would say, the Lord is our righteousness. So when the adversary comes and accuses even though the sins He might accuse of us of are true, they can't be held against us because we have the righteousness we need. The righteousness we need is Jesus, you see. Uh, I'll leave you with this. Uh, the phrase in the Hebrew for the Lord our righteousness in, Zach, or in uh, Jeremiah is Yahweh Tekenu. Uh, it's kind of chuffed to say, but the reason I bring it up is because uh, there was a poem and a song written by Robert Murray McChain. Anybody heard of Robert Murray McChain? He was a, a 19th century Scottish preacher, minister, pastor. He died very young at like 29, but very well known for his um, love of the Lord and such. And he, he wrote this poem. It goes like this. I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Tekenu, or the Lord is my righteousness, was nothing to me. I often read with pleasure to soothe or uh, engage Isaiah's uh, wild measure and John's simple page, but in when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Tekenu seemed nothing to me. Like fears from the... Uh, from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet though thought that my sins, not that my sins had nailed him to the tree, Jehovah Tekenu was nothing to me. But when free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fears, uh, fears shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge. Um, my, and I'm sorry here because when I copied this in, it went weird on me. So it's all kind of commodulated. That's why I'm stumbling over it. Uh, no refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Tekenu, the Lord is my righteousness, my Savior must be. He didn't treasure this concept of the Lord is His righteousness until He felt His own sin. He could even get emotional thinking about the cross Get to be emotional about that. You know, Jesus dying on the cross, and that's sad, and he could do other things religiously. But it wasn't until God awoke his soul to his real need of righteousness. Like, I don't have it, and I need it. I've got sin. Where do I look? I can't find it within myself. No matter how hard I try, I can't find my righteousness in myself. And all of a sudden, then he says, the Lord is my righteousness, became everything. He is my righteousness. And I think that a believer who is seeking to live out God's will in his life or her life, and they are seeking to do what is right and do as John said, purify themselves as he is pure, the more they see their own impurity, the concept 
of the Lord as our righteousness becomes more precious, not less. There is more of an endearment to, the, to Jesus and His righteousness, more of a, a scene, I need this righteousness, than even when you began your journey as a Christian, I believe. I think that happens over time. So anyway, those are two pictures, and I think the, the people of God needed those towards the beginning of the prophets to make sure that they understood that nothing they were about to do is gaining their favor back with God. Nothing they're about to do is um, earning for them salvation and forgiveness in these that what they need is that foundation of acknowledgement of sin, repentance, uh, forgiveness, and righteousness that come through the Lord alone, okay? So, all right, well, let's pray. God, thank you again. Just as Bill said, we praise you for Jesus in his intercession for us as our great high priest. We do desire to live for him in a way that we should, but yet we confess our failings. And so I pray that you would keep us a people repenting and working laboring for you, knowing our labor is not in vain. And when Satan tempts us to despair, tells us of the guilt within, let us look up and see Jesus, the one who's done away with all our sin. And so we praise you for him. In his name we close this. Amen.